This morning, uh, we'll be studying First uh, John chapter one, starting with verse five. Again, that's First John chapter one, verse five. I'll be reading from the ESV version. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all of our sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with our Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, propitiation for our sins, and not for ourselves, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. May God bless the reading of His Word. In his book, The Screw Tape Letters. C.S. Lewis imagines a series of lessons on living life as a Christian in the face of temptations and sins and failures. He does this, however, from the perspective of a senior demon named Screwtape, who's writing letters giving advice to his nephew, Wormwood, this younger and less experienced demon. Now, Wormwood, the nephew, has been assigned to guide a man towards the devil, or whom they call our father below, and away from the enemy, that's God. One of the main differences in their approaches is that Wormwood is really anxious in, in trying to tempt this man, this person, with extremely deplorable sins. But Screwtape takes a much more subtle stance, because he knows the effectiveness of playing the long game. And so in one of the letters, Screwtape commends Wormwood's actions of, of subtly turning this man away from God in such a way that the man thinks that his new choices, the way he's living his life now, it's all trivial. It doesn't really matter. Screwtape continues in his letter, and he says this, For this reason, I am almost glad to hear that he is still a churchgoer and someone who still partakes in communion. I know there are dangers in this, but anything is better that he should realize uh, than that he should realize the break he has made with the first months of his Christian life. As long as he retains externally the habits of a Christian, he can still be made to think of himself as one who has adopted a few new friends and amusements, but whose spiritual state is much the same as it was six weeks ago. And while he thinks that we do not have to contend with the explicit repentance of a definite, fully recognized sin, 
but only with his vague, though uneasy, feeling that he hasn't been doing very well lately. In the next letter, Screwtape then actually reprimands Wormwood, because since the last letter, this man has begun to feel some sort of repentance. And he remarks to Wormwood that a repentance and renewal of what the other side call grace on the scale on which you describe is a defeat of the first order. He continues, it remains to consider how we can retrieve this disaster. The great thing is to prevent his doing anything. You see, as long as he does not convert it into action, it does not matter how much he thinks about this new repentance. Let the little brute wallow in it. Let him, if he has any bent that way, write a book about it. That is often an excellent way of sterilizing the seeds which the enemy, that's God, plants in a human soul. Let him do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imagination and affections will harm us if we can keep it out of his will. As one of the humans has said, active habits are strengthened by repetition, by, but passive ones are weakened. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will be able to ever to act. And in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. We're in the middle of this sermon series, How to Get Unstuck Spiritually. Do you feel like this man whose spiritual state is the same as it was six weeks ago, six months ago, 60 years ago? The topic today is, is confession, active repentance. And this book, The Screwtape Letters, although it's fiction, it paints a sometimes all-too-realistic picture of our fight against sin and the fight to get unstuck spiritually. Now, all of us know that it's not easy at times, and at times we are stuck spiritually because we're stuck in sin. Our passage this morning comes from 1 John 1, 5 to 2. John there in this letter is also writing a letter, but he's not giving advice on how to remain spiritually stuck in sin. But rather, he actually corrects some wrong understandings of sin that the false teachers during their, his time were espousing and teaching his readers. Really, when, when all is said and done, what God is calling us to do this morning is this. Confess sin and confess Christ. Confess sin and confess Christ. But before we get there, John is going, he's going to ground our understanding of sin, both in the nature of God and the work of Christ. And then from there, he's going to draw, draw out some implications of, of what that means, what it means for us. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there to 1 John 1, 5. And the first thing that we're going to see is this, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So John is describing God's nature. He's light, not literally, but, but metaphorically. God is holy. He is perfect. He is morally excellent. excellent. That, there's no sin in God. 
This is the message John proclaims to his readers. That God is like, this is who they worship. This is God's nature. And it's the nature of God that, uh, as light that serves as the basis for the ethical implications for those who follow God. Put simply, who God is matters for how we live. Who God is matters for how we live. So in the rest of this morning's passage, we're, we're going to see these implications. What follows in this passage is actually six conditional statements, these if statements. Now, if you have your Bible, it's probably going to be a little bit easier for us to follow along to see what's going on. So there's these six conditional statements, but really the, there's three pairs. And, and the verse pairs are going to be laid out in, in the outline in your bulletin. And they all follow this similar pattern. So let's take the, the first pair as an example, verses 6 to 7. John begins with a claim that the opponents are making. In this case, they're saying, we can have fellowship with God while still walking in darkness. Then John explains the consequence of that claim. If you claim that, you say that, then you lie and you do not practice the truth. Then he follows up with a, a counter-hypothesis or a counterclaim, And then the consequence from that. So he says, walk in the light as he is in the light. And if you do, you have fellowship with one another. And Jesus' blood cleanses you from all sin. So the opponent's claim, consequence from that. Then John's counter-hypothesis or a counterclaim, And the consequence from that. And he does this three times. Now, throughout this whole passage, John is correcting his opponent's view and, and teaching his readers a, a proper understanding of sin. The word sin is repeated eight times in our passage. The word darkness, twice. So clearly, this, this understanding, this idea of sin is, is a huge deal in our passage today. What's sin, though? might help for us to maybe take a step back from our passage for a moment to look at what sin is. To take a page from Augustine, sin is disordered love. Augustine believed that all sin was a lack of love, or more accurately, that, that our heart's loves are all out of order. So for example, you love your job, most of us, you love video games, you love your family. You know, all these things are, are great. Nothing inherently wrong with any of these things. But if you love your job more than you love your family, if you love video games more than you love your family, then I think most, most of us would agree that your loves are out of order. And what ends up happening, perhaps, is that you end up hurting your family. If you love money more than you love justice, then you may end up exploiting or cheating others. Because your loves are disordered. Similarly, sin is when we love other things more than we love God. It's when we turn good things into ultimate things. And what are these things that we sometimes might love more than God? Might be people. Our kids, our boyfriend or, or girlfriend or our, our spouse. Or famous figures, people on Instagram. Maybe it's not people, but maybe it's prosperity. Right? We love money, or, or probably more importantly, we love what money brings, which is security, 
independence. Maybe it's posterity. We love youthfulness and health. We love it more than God. And we pursue these things more than we pursue God. Or, or, or it's pleasure. Sex, instant gratification, the dopamine hit we get from the next like or follower, or power. Right? We, we pursue our image or success, popularity, status. Any of these things could be things that any of us struggle with, that we love more than we love God. And so in a sense, what we value has been turned upside down. You know, as Elder Chris preached last week, we become what we worship. What people revere, we resemble, whether for ruin or for restoration. We become what we behold. And so we have a disordered love at times. And what we need instead is a reordered love. Kierkegaard, he, he tells a parable of a man who broke into a department store. Rather than stealing the merchandise, this, this thief, this guy, he rearranged the price tags on all these different items. And so the next morning, the clerks and the customers, they found one surprise after another. Diamond necklaces that were sold for a dollar. Cheap costume jewelry costing thousands. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is who God is. He is that that priceless, costly diamond necklace worth an infinite amount and who should be recognized and revered as such. Now, what difference does it make then that God is light? So John gives us three implications from this basis. The first is this. Sin disrupts fellowship. Therefore, walk in the light. Sin disrupts fellowship Therefore, walk in the light. So verses 6 to 7, if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What this means is that fellowship with God is not compatible with walking in darkness. See, the, the opponents, these people, these false teachers were claiming that they could have fellowship with God and still walk in darkness. They could be in this reconciled, right, redeemed relationship with God while still purposely living in sin. And John says, no. If that is what you say or claim, you're lying. Light and darkness have no fellowship. They're, they're mutually incompatible. Sometimes we're stuck spiritually. Because we're stuck in sin. Now, our, our being stuck spiritually may not always be because of sin. But if, as we read through this passage, and there was a specific sin in your life that came up in your mind, that might be God shining his light on it. We walk in darkness that prevents us from having fellowship with God. Screwtape, in, again, in one of his letters, he writes this. It does not matter how small the sins are provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. 
Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So John points out, look, sin actually does disrupt fellowship with God. It it puts up a wall. Over time, as you continue to walk in darkness, that wall becomes more and more opaque until you can't even see God anymore. And at some point, you forget he's even there. So John exhorts his readers, walk in the light as he is in the light. He connects how we live with who God is. We walk in the light as he is in the light. Now, this doesn't mean that we're never going to sin. John talks about that later. But it it does mean that we don't hide our sins from God. We readily expose and surrender our sins to God. And when we do, John lays out two consequences of that. One, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Christ Secondly, cleanses us from all sin. Now that's interesting, I think, right? Because you would expect John to say maybe that that if we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with God. Because earlier he said if we walk in darkness, we don't have fellowship with God. But instead he says we have fellowship with one another. Sin disrupts fellowship not only with God, but with each other. That sin becomes a part of you. And in shame, you hide it. You hide it from God, even though he already knows, but you also hide it from those around you. And it prevents you from truly knowing God. And it prevents others from truly knowing you. So sin disrupts fellowship. Therefore, walk in the light. Here's the second implication. Sin does not discriminate. Therefore, confess your sin. 8 to 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin does not discriminate. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what checkbox you check off and the forms you fill out. Sin does not discriminate. And so that means that no one is without sin. You see, apparently these false teachers in John's day, they were claiming to have no sin. It's also possible that we could also take it to mean that they were free from being guilty of sin. So they acknowledged that they sinned, but they they said, no, we're, we're guiltless. Either way, John again would say, no, if you claim to have no sin or no guilt, you're deceiving yourself. This word sin, it's very theologically loaded. Given the world we live in, I think sometimes it's also a word that has lost its meaning among many people, even, even especially among Christians. In college, I remember my, my Old Testament professor, he shared a story of when he asked a former class what word they would use to describe actions such as lying and stealing and cheating. A student at the front of the class answered, it's a mistake. The professor attempted to rephrase the question many, many different ways. 
But over and over again, the student kept saying, it's a mistake. Lying is a mistake. Stealing is a mistake. Cheating is a mistake. They weren't sins, just mistakes. But sin is more than a mistake. It's more than an accidental lapse of judgment. There are times where we like to diminish or deny the presence of sin in our lives. Like those uh, really talented makeup videos or the, the May 2 beauty cam app, we, we hide our flaws, our blemishes, our metaphorical blackheads and wrinkles. But all we're doing is deceiving ourselves. See, underneath all the, the layers of metaphorical makeup, all the layers of BB cream and CC cream and Concealer, foundation, eyeliner, mascara, blush, all these things. Underneath all that lies who we are. Sinful individuals who have chosen to love other things. Even ourselves, especially ourselves, more than God. So how do we deceive ourselves by denying the sin in our lives? We rename it. It's not gossip. It's passing along information. It's not gluttony or, or materialism. It's, it's living the good life. It's not pride. It's boosting my self-esteem. It's not idolatry or worshiping the self. It's living the best version of me now. It's not disobedience. It's shortcomings. It's not sin. It's a mistake. We deny sins not just by renaming it, we also justify it. My lie didn't hurt anyone. My cheating was brought on by the circumstances. We also deny the sin by detaching ourselves from it. That wasn't really me that sinned. I mean, it was me physically, that, that was my hand or my body or whatever, physically committing that act, but not really who I am because in my mind I have an inflated picture of who I hold myself to be so I de detach myself from that sin it's not really me that is no one is without sin sin does not discriminate and so therefore confess your sins John writes how though I was doing my devotions earlier this week and uh, the devotion that day just happened uh, in God's providence, I guess, to be, to be on confession. I found it to be particularly convicting and helpful, so let me read it for you. It's pretty short. I will make this confession, although it hurts to do so. I am a very skilled self-swindler. I am very good at playing monkey games with my morality. All too often I argue for righteousness that simply is not there. It's too easy for me to convince myself that the wrong that I have done is not so wrong after all. And as I work to minimize the gravity of my condition, I in turn devalue the grace that is my only hope of rescue, transformation, deliverance. Lord, please crush my heart with the guilt my sin, of my sins, so that you may fill it once again with the glory of your redeeming grace.
In Psalm 51, we see another example. King David cries out to God in confession of his sin. This is after Nathan the prophet calls him out for committing adultery with Bathsheba and basically sending her husband out to the front lines of the war. Guaranteed death. He writes and he prays and he sings, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He continues on, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He writes later, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. So do you see what he does? Doesn't, doesn't deny his sin, doesn't diminish it. He acknowledges the extent and the depth of his sin. He confesses it to God, and he asks God to do a miraculous work in his heart. There's not too many passages in the New Testament that talk about confession of sin. The ones that do often also get at the idea of confessing your sins to each other. I think John probably also has this in his mind. Brothers and sisters, do you have people who you regularly confess your sins to? And because no one is without sin and no one is perfect, are there people who regularly confess their sins to you? The point is not that we're perfect, because we're not. Nor do we offer forgiveness, which is not ours to give. John writes, if we confess our sins, God is faithful. And just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sins to other, each other, we point each other back to God. We expose our sins because in the light, sin has no power. Sin has no hold on us when we bring it out of darkness into light. And being part of the local church means that this should be happening. We can do this in fellowship and in small groups. We can do this in accountability groups and men's groups and women's groups. We can do this in discipleship groups or one-on-one -on -one discipleship. Sin disrupts fellowship with God and with one another. Therefore, walk in the light. Bring it into the light. Sin does not discriminate. Therefore, confess your sins. Here's the last implication. Sin has been dealt with. Therefore, confess Christ as Savior. He ends our passage with this. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, to be a liar. His word is not in us. My children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John writes that if anyone does sin, and, and I think the presumption is that that's everyone, we have Christ. There is hope. So the passage is saying this, confess your sins 
but also confess Christ. We need both. It's not enough to confess one without the other. As one author put it, you see, if we confess our sins without confessing Christ, we become self-loathing. If we confess Christ without confessing our sins, we, be we become self-satisfied. And in both cases, we're self-absorbed. We're focusing either on how hopeless we are in our sin or how righteous we are in spite of Christ. Tim Keller explains the gospel in this way. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Confess your sins, but also confess Christ. Because Christ is our advocate and our atoning sacrifice. We've seen these six conditional statements in this passage, paired off in three groups. I think what's interesting is that the first two statements, they, they focus on what we're to do. Right? Walk in the light, confess your sins. The last one, however, it emphasizes what Christ has done. It assumes that what we're doing in this case is sinning, but we have an advocate, an atoning sacrifice, who is our propitiation. That's to say that the work of Christ on the cross appeases the wrath of God on us. We're reconciled to God and delivered from sin and from the punishment for sin by our Redeemer. Are you stuck spiritually? Confess your sin. Confess Christ too. I'm going to invite the worship team up now and have them play through our song of response, which is based on Psalm 51. As they play, take the time to individually confess your sins to God. Take the time, too, to confess Christ as the only righteous Redeemer who can save us from our sins. Because we're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So confess your sins. Confess Christ. Let me begin this time by praying for us. God, we give you thanks for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we take this time to look into our own lives, look into the areas in which we still have yet to surrender up to you, Lord. We ask that you would expose those areas, bring to light those areas that we need to give to you. And draw us into your presence that we might know, believe, and experience your forgiveness and your grace. 